Well, we're back in our series, Theology for Life tonight. And uh, we have, have talked about several different theologies that pertain to salvation. And we're going to do the same tonight. I want to tell you just a quick story I read today. Um, in 1965, how many were alive in 1965? Can I see your hands, please? You guys were pretty old by 1965, some of you. You got married that year. Wow. Got married at age nine or ten. About eight, yeah. That's great. 1965. You know, to a 38-year-old whippersnapper like me, 1965 just seems like a long time ago. I realize the crowd I'm talking to, okay? But in, in, in 1965, a long time ago, a man by the name of Roman Apolka decided to start painting in a very unique way. He started painting by using only numerics, numbers. His goal was to start at the number one and then right beside the number one, paint the number two. And right beside the number two, paint the number three and keep painting on canvases in numeric order for the rest of his life. Every canvas he painted on was the same exact size, 196 centimeters by 135 centimeters. The numbers were always painted in white and every painting was titled the same. He titled them details. For 45 years, this man painted this progression of numbers across a canvas from the top left corner until he got to the bottom right corner. And then he'd start again with the next number on a new canvas. By the time he died in 2011, he was at number 5,607,249. You can go and Google it and, and look at some of those paintings and they'll zoom in and you can see the number. It's amazing to me how dedicated he was for all these years to write number after number after number on one blank canvas after another. Yet this reminds me, church, of, of even a more detailed work by an even better artist. I'm talking about the work of sanctification by the most committed artist ever, God himself. Tonight we're going to be talking about that doctrine Sanctification, the lifelong process by which God conforms his children to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We've talked about justification, that, that moment of salvation. It's instantaneous. You are declared righteous before God. You are forgiven, made right of past sin, present sin, and all your future sin. Justified. It's amazing. Have you been justified? We, we, we've talked about uh, eternal security. Once you're saved, you are always saved. Hallelujah for that. Then we will eventually talk about glorification, right? Glorification is the theological term for, well, when you become complete. When God's done painting. When, when you are in heaven and you're perfect. How many are ready for that day? I had to fight off some temptation today. I'm ready for the day when I don't have to even fight temptation. And in between justification 
And glorification is this ongoing, lifelong process called sanctification. See, in order for us to take on the beauty of the image of Jesus, that that work of God must live inside thousands of little moments in our daily lives. Like in the tiniest of increments, number after number. Day after day, God tends to transform the ugly messes because of our sin into the beautiful sons and daughters he saved us to be. Here's the thing about God as our artist. He never gets bored. He never grows weary. He never is frustrated and and his commitment to, to complete his redemptive artwork. It just never fades. And he doesn't do this amazing work with only a few of us. But millions and millions of us over thousands of years of human history and in every place on the globe, God is sanctifying a ton of people at one time. He's painting on millions of canvases simultaneously. And he will keep his hand to the canvas until we are as beautiful as he suffered, died, and rose again for us to be. We can be assured that there will be a day when we will walk into the greatest gallery ever to see the the most detailed and beautiful work ever painted. And we will spend the rest of eternity in wonder and celebration as we look around and see nothing but glorification. It's amazing. So we're going to rush to the Bible to, to learn about this incredible theology tonight. A sanctification. The first third of the message will be from sanctification from the scripture. And, and the last two thirds of the message will be sanctification in everyday life. Number one, sanctification in scripture. Can I just say this real quick? No matter how long you've known the Lord, you still need his sanctifying work acting in your heart right now. Okay. No matter how much you've grown in grace, guess what? You still need to grow in grace. There is no such thing as a sanctification graduate. No such thing. You don't get a diploma from this till you get to heaven. So you need this message tonight. And I need this message tonight. Notice a few things about sanctification. Number one, the goal of sanctification is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. Where do we find that? I I can find it in a lot of places in scripture. Two are very obvious. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. Okay, I, I, you, don't, you can turn there if you want. We've got so many to turn to that I put them on the screen because we, we got we to gotta get through this. But we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul recognized that the process of sanctification should be changing us from glory to glory, from the glory of salvation to the glory of reaching our heavenly destination. We are are from glory to glory, he said. We are being changed into the image of his son. Romans 8, 29 is another great example. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his, next word, that he might be the firstborn among many Brethren, like God predestined the journey of you becoming conformed into the image of Christ. It's his plan. Like, like that is his will. Okay, let me, let me point this out. Letter B. The process of sanctification is a partnership between the Holy Spirit and the believer. So the goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. What does that look like? It's a process where we partner with the Holy Spirit. 
Philippians chapter 2. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I want to ask Paul, which one is it? Is it God working in me or is it me working for God? And Paul would say yes. These verses show partnership. We're called to work out our salvation, but God is also working in us to produce the lifestyle he desires. It's important that we pay attention to both both verses, verses 12 and verse 13 of Philippians 2. If we only live in verse 12, which tells us to work on our salvation, then we're going to try to become like Jesus on our own. And that's impossible. But if we only live in verse 13, where it says that, that, that God works in you to will and do of his good pleasure, then we're going to get ourselves off the hook and do nothing ourselves. You know what we need? We need both. We need reliance on God and we need a strong spiritual work ethic. I'm not talking about salvation, by the way. I'm talking about sanctification. Okay. Sanctification means we work out what God is working in. We cooperate with him. So then the question is this, how does God work in us? Is it like a mysterious process that we can't explain? Well, I will say yes, sometimes it is. Have you ever been through a season of life and you're like, I have grown in the Lord and I'm not quite sure how it all happened. Okay, sometimes it is, but I would say most of the time God's work of sanctification is through processes that are actually really obvious and explainable from the scripture. So let's talk about some of the tools in God's toolbox of sanctification. I'm not going to cover these like in a lot of application because I'm about to apply a lot of them in our next point, but I'll just run through these scriptures. If you want to write them down, first Peter chapter one and verse two establishes his primary tool is the Holy spirit. He he says elect or those saved according to the foreknowledge of God, the father through sanctification of the spirit unto obedience. So we understand that, that the primary tool God uses, the, the person of the Godhead, so to speak, that performs this ministry is the Holy Spirit. He sanctifies us. Now, what does the Holy Spirit use to sanctify the elect or the saved? John 17, 17 points out one. He uses the word of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. For sake of time, I'm not going to be able to throw this into the application in the last part of the message. So let me say it now. You need to learn to read your Bible every day. The kids song had it right. Read your Bible, pray every day and you grow, grow, grow. I know it's a simple song. Sometimes I've been tempted to make you stand and do it with me. Neglect your Bible, forget to pray and you shrink, shrink, shrink. I know that is very elementary and cookies on the bottom shelf, but we would do well to obey the words of that little children's song. Why am I not growing? Have you been in the word? Sanctify them through thy truth. Well, what's truth? Thy word is truth. Get into the word and you will grow, grow, grow. Hebrews 12, 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. What's another tool for our sanctification? God's chastening. We don't like this. We don't, we don't like it. But in some ways it's a compliment to us because he doesn't chasten those who are not his children. He chastens us because he loves us because we're his. We're not illegitimate children. We're, we're real children of the king. And so he doesn't let us get away with sin. That's a tool of his. 
Romans 8.28 shows us that even difficult circumstances can work together. And we know that all things, even, even difficult things, work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. I read Romans 8.29 earlier, which puts this verse in context. Because even the most difficult seasons of our life, God predestines and works together to conform us into the image of his son talk about that in a little bit. Hebrews 10, 25, he uses the local church, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. In other words, don't forsake coming to church. I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're here on a Wednesday, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? Why do you need spiritual leaders? Spiritual leaders are a tool for your sanctification. Why do you need a pastor? Why do you need a teacher? For the perfecting of the saints, the completion, the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, these verses help us to comprehend the love of God and how how much passion He has for our spiritual growth. God so desires for you to become more like Christ that he's giving you the Holy Spirit to work inside of you. He's giving you the word of God to convict you as you're exposed to it. He's giving you the ministry of a local church and a pastor to give you accountability and teaching and fellowship. And he's even given you circumstances in your life to refine you. I think that's a little glimpse of sanctification in scripture. The goal of sanctification is to simply conform us more and more into the image of Christ until our glorification. The process of sanctification is simply a partnership with the Holy Spirit to work out what God is working in. Now, what does that look like in everyday life? It's our second point, sanctification in everyday life. This is where the rubber meets the road in this theology. I think there are several implications that that just naturally flow from the doctrine of sanctification I want to share with you. Here's the first. There is no such thing as passive Christianity. If sanctification is true, that God wants us to be conformed in the image uh, image of his son until we get to heaven, then that is not a passive activity. There is no room, please hear me, no room for a lazy, inactive, undisciplined approach to the Christian life. You do not become more like Christ just because you're saved. It is a partnership. It's not passive. That means that God's work in you and God's work for you should become your work as well. Let me show you a couple of passages. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 9. Mortify. Somebody just tell me out loud what you think the word mortify means. To kill. To kill. That's not passive. You got to do something. Mortify, put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime, which ye lived in them, but now ye also put off. Put off. You're going to take off your clothes tonight, right? When you take them off, it's not passive. You don't just get a... Stand there and say, clothes, come off. I wish we could. Got to take them off. Anger, wrath, malice, 
blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not to one another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. It's work. Kill sin. Resist some things. Take off some things. Say no to some things. But it's not just in the negative sense. It's also in the positive sense. Colossians 3.12. Put on, therefore. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and say, shoes, get on my feet. It doesn't work that way. You've got to put them on as the elect of God. Holy and beloved. What do we put on? We put on bowels of mercy. We put on kindness. We put on humbleness of mind. We put on meekness. We put on long-suffering. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. This is the active tense. Forbearing. Put up with the person that annoys you. Forgive the person that hurts you. If any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. That seems like hard work to me. And it is. Now we do know this. That the Holy Spirit will enable us. The Holy Spirit will empower us. The Holy Spirit will equip us to sanctification. But we have to do our part in yielding to the Holy Spirit. We have to work toward what the Spirit is working in. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you another proof text for this. Verse 3 through 8. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's salvation I just read about. Right? God has given you these amazing things in Christ. But that's not where it stops. Sanctification begins the moment salvation happens. And beside this, beside all these precious promises you have in Christ, Giving all diligence, there's the work, all diligence, add to your faith, virtue. And then add to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see from that passage of scripture, you don't get saved and then just wipe your hands and say, I'm not going to hell. See you. Peace. That's not how it works. That is how Christianity in America seems to work. That's not Bible Christianity. When Jesus looked at his disciples, he said, let me tell you what you need to do. If you want to follow me, you need to pick up your cross. You need to deny yourself. You need to say no to some things and yes to other things. And it's going to hurt. It's called surrender and commitment. This is Bible Christianity. And when you get saved, you've got to go through the proper work with the Spirit's power and enablement to add to your faith. Paul wrote to a couple of different groups of believers. He wrote to, in the book of Hebrews to those Christians and he, he wrote to the church of Corinth and, and, and he, he, he carried a common theme to both of those bodies of believers. He told them, Ye are, you're immature Christians. Like you're still drinking the milk when you should be eating the meat. You can look at it in Hebrews and, and you can look at that in, in, in the, the church of Corinth. You can even see it in, in, in uh, the Peter's epistles. The concern is that so many churches are filled with passive Christians. Right. 
Christians that have been saved for decades but still drinking from a spiritual bottle. Shame on us. Christians that just think, by, that, think that kind of just by osmosis, just coming into the building, that they just become flourishing, thriving, growing, healthy, mature Christians. That's not how it works. You got to show up to grow up, but after you show up, you got to do some things. That's important. Let me give this, this letter B. I could go on, but we, we got to go. The church is essential to your sanctification. There is no such thing as vibrant, ever maturing and and ministry oriented Christian life without the local church. Man, you just got to read the epistles to 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 think about how much God thinks of the local church. Right. There's a greater body of believers all around the globe, but there is the local church and God places us into a local church as it pleases him. Right? You need a local church that you're committed to and a, and a local church that is willing to commit themselves to you. Think about how every ministry of the body of Christ contributes to like this spiritual growth process. Think about just the public teaching and preaching of the church. I'm not saying I'm the best preacher. I'm not propping myself up. You go to another church and you would still need teaching and preaching, right? If even if it wasn't me. So I'm not making this case based on who you hear every Sunday. I'm making the case on what the word of God says. You need the word. And you don't just need it on your lap. And you don't just need it from your TV screen. You don't just need it in your earbuds via podcast. Like you need a man of God to stand before you and teach you the word of God. I need that. You need that. That helps you as a Christian. Think about in your life. Think back to the sermons that have been instrumental in your Christian life. The preachers that have been instrumental in your Christian life. Now, would you just take away every preacher and teacher that you've ever heard or been under their preaching and tell me where would you be? And if you think I'm propping myself up, I promise you I'm not. I I, I just... I. Man, I get scared to think of where I'd be without the men of God that have stood behind this pulpit. Men of God that that, that helped teach me in Bible college and preach and people at youth camps that I heard that influenced me. Even preachers now that I listen to to feed my own soul. I'm like, man, I need preaching. I need teaching. And you do too. We need public worship. What I mean, we need to sing to each other. Like that is important. That reminds us of the gospel and that teaches and preaches the gospel to those around us. That encourages each other. That that, that encourages your brother and your sister who might come to church and be really struggling that night. We need the singing of the church. You know what else we need? We need just simply the public reading of God's word. I've, I've interspersed that in our, in our worship services more intentionally in the last year and a half on purpose. You know why? Because I want you to understand that the word of God stands by itself. You don't need me to preach it for it to be powerful. It also has power when you just read it off the page. So when you come to communion service and there's not a whole lot of exposition, there's just reading of the word. You need that. That's good for you. That's good for me. When we open up a Sunday morning service with a call to worship from the word of God, you know what we're doing? We are putting it on a pedestal and saying it is powerful. It is sufficient 
For this service, we are not following man's strategy. We're not following man's technique. We're not following man's personality. This service is being built on the authority of God's word. We need the mutual ministry fellowship of our brothers and sisters. Constantly to be reminded that our Christian life and spiritual growth is like a community project. So that we can reject individualistic Christianity. You know what else we need? We need the example and the wisdom and the rebuke and the encouragement of mature brothers and sisters who understand how to live as children of God in a fallen world. You get those people at church. You know what else we need? We need the church because the church calls upon us to sacrificially give. And I'm telling you right now, in order to get to a certain part of your spiritual growth, it's like a hurdle. You've got to, you've got to be faithful to the discipline of giving. There's something that just giving a tithe and an offering to the Lord on a regular basis and being faithful. There's something that does in your spiritual growth that nothing else can accomplish. I'm telling you, whenever you say, no, I'm not going to spend it on that so that I can put the kingdom of God first. That does something for your spiritual life. You need the church that will call you to give to a missionary like Corey East spontaneously. You need that. You need a church that will say, hey, we're taking faith promise commitments the, the last Sunday of every April, every year, so that you give above your tithe and you ought to give sacrificially and you ought to give by faith. That shouldn't bother you. That should motivate you. That should be like, oh man, I get to grow another step in my faith this year. I get to say no to my flesh. Every month to say yes to missions. We need the faith strengthening experience of the, what happened just now? Oh, gotcha. I think it's God saying amen. We need the the faith strengthening experience of the ordinances. We need to see baptism a lot. We need to have communion regularly. To remind ourselves of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't just get to do baptism wherever. The local church. The local church is where we baptize new believers. The local church is where we have joint communion. And remember the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Like we need that. Are you with me? So don't just be thankful for your church. Like give yourself to your church. Joyfully participate in all its public and private ministry. Sacrificially support your church. Be active in ministries. Watch here. That don't just target you or your children. But address the needs of other people. Why? Because that grows you. I talked to some people in the nursery that told me I don't like working in a nursery. And I said, I'm glad you're there. Why? You need it. You need it. I don't know about working on bus. I have to get to church a little bit earlier and stay a little bit late. Well, you need that. Oh, me and Joyce were talking about this. I'll throw you under the bus and I'll roll back over and hit you a second time, Joyce. We were talking about the fact that sometimes we just need to, we just need to serve in ways that make us feel uncomfortable. I think... And I'm not, I, not, I do not regret saying that you ought to find your sweet spot ministry. I do not regret saying that. 
Because I feel like God has equipped you to serve this body uniquely. Where your experience, your talent, and your passion collides. That's your sweet spot. You get to do something for the body of Christ that you love. It's not too hard. It actually gives you energy. It doesn't drain you of energy. You should find that sweet spot if there's a spot available for you. Serve in that spot. But we also ought to find like a service type ministry. I really believe that. We ought to find something that causes us to stay humble. We ought, to, we, ought to, we ought to do something that, that makes us feel like, oh, man, I don't know. That's hard. Well, that's good. That's good. That is sanctifying in our lives. I started working on the bus. Brother Andrew taught me into it when I was 14 or 15 or something like that. And I, it was really fun for the first week. You know who I rode with every Saturday? Every Saturday. You know who I rode with? Bill Helm. He always had a stick shift Ford Ranger. And you know what, what I remember? Bill Helm always kept the, the Tootsie Roll bucket right there in the center console. And I would just always be sneaking Tootsie Rolls <laughs> all through bus visitation. And you know, guys like Bill Helm, he's always been old, right? He was always old. He was never young. He's in heaven now. What a great man of God he was. But Bill Helm was just not in a hurry on Saturdays. He's retired. He was a lineman or whatever he did his whole life. And he just, the dude was, well, I had things to do on Saturday. So I'm like running to these doors. He's just kind of moseying along, talking to dogs, petting cats and doing all these things. I'm just, I can just go back to those times and tell you, and brother Mike, you worked on the bus for 18 years. It's sanctifying, isn't it? There's something it does in your soul. And I'm not saying you've got to just be there permanently. I'm just saying, and I'm not saying it's got to be bus ministry or nursery. I hope you get my heart. I'm just saying that there are some things that we need to do for the body of Christ that just are like, Ugh. but it needs to be done. And it's good for us. And it strengthens us. Can I get an amen on that? Like, don't just come here to like sign up for what's comfortable for you all the time. Or that benefits your kids. Like, do something that hurts every once in a while. It's good for you. Okay, let her see. Man, I didn't want to spend that much time. I got some good stuff coming up. Sanctification gives our key relationships a new purpose. What are our key relationships? I'm going to put them under three categories. Marriage, parenting, and friendship. Now, I want you to pay close attention to this. I think the, I think the three key relationships are your, are your relationship to your spouse, if you have one. Your relationship to your children, if you have them. Or your relationship to your God-given friends. Let me ask you this question. Why in the world would God put these comprehensive and personally demanding relationships in the middle of the world's most incomplete process of sanctification? Wouldn't it have been better to get us fully sanctified before we were married? Or before we had kids? Or before the friendship got hard? I mean, what do you think is going to happen when you put a sinner next to a sinner? In a fallen world. Inside of an intense personal relationship. What do you think is going to happen? The only way to understand God's plans for our relationship is to understand that he has a much better purpose for those relationships than that, he would be, than that they would be a means of experiencing some kind of relational bliss. 
If God's sole purpose for our relationships is our comfort and our pleasure and our ease, let's just admit it. He had, he massively failed. Right? Here's the truth. God's ultimate goal for our relationships is that they would actually be the most powerful and effective tools in the process of our sanctification. Yet what do we do when our key relationships under the umbrella of those three categories, what do we typically do when they start to get hard? We check out. We give up. We move on. But is that God's manner of of behavior or a reaction or response to us whenever we make our relationship with him difficult? Does he check out on us? He walk away from us? You know what God understands? He understands we are a work like in progress. And a lifelong process. And he has patience. And I'm here to tell you that you ought to take this process oriented mindset into every one of your key relationships. What does that mean? In moments of of difficult seasons of marriage, those those moments that you have, those those arguments, those fights, those disagreements, those hurdles you can't get over. you, you you, You should view those as opportunities. You should view those as as like God's canvas he's he's painting your marriage to look more like jesus and he happens to be using both of you sinners to sharpen each other whenever you are parenting your children you you aren't just trying to get them to do what you want them to do in the moment so they'll leave you alone when they actually behave in a way that demonstrates they need parental care and you care for them You are doing so to try to shepherd their heart. You are doing so to try to have a sanctifying moment in both your life and their life. When your kids stress you out to the max. It's not because they're just hyperactive and they're annoying. It's because God is using that kind of energy to work in you long-suffering. And I'm talking about the kind of long-suffering that lets your kids act like retards, like crazy. I shouldn't have said that word. Um, And I mean that. I don't like that word. Uh, God is sanctifying me. Um, Not let them act like uh, dummies. That's a better word. Not as good, but it's a better word. Dummies, devils, demons. You want to offer any other words? Because I can't think of any. Idiots. Terrorists. Murderers. Thieves. Coveters. That, well. (laughs) And so, I don't even know where to go from there. When, I'm not saying for, like, I'm not saying y'all to be passive. God's not trying to work in you passivity. So when your kids are acting like idiots, deal with it. Amen? When they're irresponsible, deal with it. But in the same regard, realize that God might be working something in you through this difficult season of parenting. When friendship gets hard, don't just walk away. Don't just walk away. Matthew 18, stay on the path of reconciliation. If you want all your friendships to just be easy for you, then you will never be sanctified through a friendship. So if the only people you want to be around is the people that you can conversate with, with like a spirit of ease and no effort at all, then you aren't being sanctified in that. 
If you only are going to be around people, like you're only going to let people into your inner circle. We all have an inner circle. You're only going to let them into your inner circle. People that think like you and act like you and dress like you and raise their kids like you. Then you will be in an echo chamber the rest of your life and you will forfeit certain growth that comes with being around people that don't see eye to eye with you. All right, letter D. The doctrine of sanctification promotes the sanctity of everything. What, is, what do I mean? I mean that God's sanctifying work, you've got to get this. I've got to skip some, but you've got to get this. God's sanctifying work is happening all the time in everything. God, there's, listen, there is not a moment in time when God is not in you if you're his child. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He's always there. And everywhere you go, God is. There is no situation in your life where he's inactive. There's no regular day where where, where deeply spiritual things are not going on. God's redeeming grace never goes on vacation. His sanctifying love never takes a break. Everything is spiritual. Everything is sacred. Everything has Godward direction. Everything has redemptive significance like everything does. I'm not asking you to be like weirdly serious all the time and never have fun or laugh. Enjoy life. But don't ever act like there are some things in your life that don't matter to God. Your Redeemer, Paul David Tripp says, works miracles of redemption in the midst of moments when it seems like not much of significance is happening. Here's what we do as Christians. We live God-forgetful lives. What do I mean? I mean that other than when we are participating in like obviously spiritual things like public worship service and prayer and personal devotion time. We like live in this state. Other than those times, we tend to live in this state of spiritual amnesia and we miss out on what God is doing in the mundane. Sanctifying grace. Watch here. It makes your marriage sacred. Every moment of your marriage, God is working in you. It makes your parenting holy. It makes the place you work holy ground. It makes your home a sacred space. It makes your sexual life a holy thing. It makes your use of money a sacred endeavor. Your life as a neighbor, your participation in politics, your moments of leisure and entertainment, your your finances, your diet, your physical health, the plans you have for your life. Watch, they're all made holy because in every one of those places, sanctifying ministry is happening. You cannot put sanctification in compartments. Because God goes with you everywhere. Because the Holy Spirit goes with you everywhere. He's going to use everyone and everywhere to sharpen you. So those days at work that just feel so pointless. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit's using a pointless day to teach you something. The mundane seasons of your marriage, God's using that. The frustrating days of your parenting, God's using that like... Every single moment of your life is important because God is in every single moment. Like he never lays his chisel down and says, I'm going to take two years off from you. No, wherever God sends you, wherever God leads you, wherever God takes you, his chisel goes there. And he's constantly chopping, 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 chopping. So never take a moment for granted. And let me say this, never take a church service for granted either. Even if it's a Wednesday night service and you're coming in here because, well, well, my wife said I needed to be here tonight. And you come in here on a Wednesday night and you're dead dog tired from work. And you might even fight to stay 
awake some of the time and that's okay. I'm just glad you're fighting it. But you show up and you're like, what's a Wednesday night? God's doing something. Well, I got to be in nursery this Sunday night. Well, God's going to do something there in you. I got to be on security and I'm going to be stuck in front of the one. I got to watch the screen tonight. Well, God's going to do something in you back there. He's saying amen again. You get what I'm saying? God's always doing something. I don't care if you're greeting at the door or you're singing a solo or you're playing an instrument or or you're working the screen or the sound system or whatever you're doing. God is going to work. He's going to sanctify you when you come to church and the offering plate passes and you know you need to give. He's going to stretch your faith, that service. It could be anything. Don't take anything for granted. One more and I'll, I'll go home. You, know, you don't even need to go outside right now. I think it's raining. So we got, we, well, I'm going to preach till the rain stops. <laughs> Difficulty. Hey, I need to say something about, about I, I skipped a part on uh, key relationships that just came to mind. I'm going to give credit to the Holy Spirit on that one. I think sometimes that we get frustrated at the imperfect people at church. Okay, so I'm going two points back. I'm hitting reverse right quick. I think we get, we get, really, we get really impatient with the hypocrites at church. Or the imperfect people at church. Or the imperfect leadership at church. And here's what we got to remember. The people you go to church with are in the same process you're in. They're in the sanctification process too. So before you... Look down your nose at somebody who's in the sanctifying process and maybe you're on a different level than they are just struggling with different sin, by the way. Before you look down on them, remind yourself God's refining them. And you'll never go to a church where people are not in the sanctification process. So take a chill pill. And by the way, my wife and I are in the same process. So we're going to cut you some slack and you cut us some slack. Because I'm going to make some dumb decisions. And the leadership here at times in our sanctifying process are going to make some hasty decisions or wrong decisions or untimely decisions or unwise decisions. Well, have some patience with me because last time I checked, you're making some dumb decisions too. All of us are, man. All of us say dumb things. And we text dumb things. And we think dumb things. Right? I got my nice filter off tonight. It's just coming out, man. But it's true, isn't it? It is true. Be patient with your brother and sister because God's chiseling them like he's chiseling you. All right, now we're going to skip forward two points to the last point. (laughs) Difficulty. Guess what I've never heard any Christian ever say? I've never heard a Christian say this. I had three of the easiest years of my life and I learned so much and changed so much from it. In passages too numerous to mention tonight. The Bible confronts us with the fact that the things we would like to avoid in our lives are the very things God uses to produce the most good in us. The hard, not the easy. Yet here's what we do. We have made, we have made comfort our God. You know how I know that? Because of the things that irritate us. I say us, that's the right pronoun, us. Long lines make us mad. Having to listen to an over-talkative person with too many details in their story makes us impatient. And the fact that it's 8.01 and we should be dismissed by 8 p.m. makes us really antsy. 
A day when we don't feel good causes us to grumble and complain. Think about it. We complain when it's cold, then we complain when it's hot. We complain when it doesn't rain, then we complain when it's raining and we got to walk out to our car. We complain when the sun is too bright, then we complain when it gets dark too early for us to golf. Don't we, Mike? We grumble if our food is too hot, but then we grumble if it's too cold. We grumble if they put too much salt on it, then we grumble if it's not seasoned enough. We complain if the portions are too big, but then we complain if we're still hungry after our meal. Or if it's not the food we like at all. We get mad when the weaknesses of our spouse make our life messier. When our children demonstrate that they really do need our parental care. When our neighbors are less than what we'd like them to be. Or when the dog seems to do stupid stuff that dogs do. Don't get a dog. Watch. We spend many of our days being dissatisfied with our lives because we are not as comfortable as we want to be. Is it any wonder that we would have a hard time being thankful that the difficulties in our lives are a primary tool of God's transforming grace when we worship the God of comfort? So I'm not asking you to have some phony type of happiness through difficult seasons. That's not what I'm asking. But I'm asking you, if you want to grow, learn to embrace it. Sanctification has no shortcuts. If God has you in a difficult season right now, you can't just get an air, you can't get an airplane, just run from it. You can't take a shortcut. You, you, you can't just get in a time machine and skip ahead. You can try to manipulate your way out of it. You can try to make your life easier. You can try to play chess. But at the end of the day, you forfeit spiritual growth when you do. And God is trying to make a beautiful masterpiece out of you. But if every time he gets his chisel out, we run, we stay spiritually weak. And there are things that stay on us that God wants to chip off through difficulty because we keep running the first moment we sense pain. Remember, you are clay in the hand of a potter. What do you have to do? Stay on the wheel. Just stay on the wheel. Quit trying to get off because it hurts. Stay there. The relationship hard, stay there. The job hard, stay there. Children acting up, it's okay. It's okay. Work through it. Misunderstandings with people, work through them. Frustrations with your health, don't give up on God. Hard times financially, keep God first. Stay on the wheel and let God mold you and shape you. Well, when does it stop? When you stop breathing. No, it's going to stop when I get a new job. No, it's not. Because you're going to have a dumb boss there too. And something unfair is going to come down at that workplace too. And it's going to be, you're going to have some really hard days there too. I know people, not a few in my 16 years of ministering here, that never dreamed they would move to liberal Kansas and wanted to get out as quick as they could. 
I'm talking people all, I mean, scattered all throughout this building tonight and in our congregation. Come on, Dad, help me. And God put them on the wheel in southwest Kansas to spin them and shape them and mold them and cut them. And a lot of them are still here, by the way. And a lot of them God let move on. And they're thriving in other places. Wherever God has you, be all there. Stay on the wheel. And just in this chapter of your life, just face it. Difficulty is God's means of making you better. Come on, the church said amen. amen. Okay, we're not going to get in a hurry. We're going to pray. This message needs an invitation. So let's fill an altar to respond to the Lord right now.